You know, I like PowerPoint. I think it's, uh, it's good for the audience. The problem with PowerPoint, though, is that it takes away a little bit of the extemporaneous style of teaching. And once you're locked into a PowerPoint, you kind of have to stay with PowerPoint. And uh, it's a little harder to watch the clock. Well, I'm going to try to do that this afternoon because I don't want to keep you too long. But I do want to cover this material. And uh, I haven't given this lesson in a long while, so there's probably going to be things in it that I have to rethink as I'm on my feet here. But nonetheless, I want us to talk a little bit about uh, strong families. You know, families really make up the church. In fact, you can go to practically any congregation and you're going to find sometimes family and extended family. And sometimes the church is predominantly made up of one or maybe two families. Well, that's really the way it should be. And of course, come with that comes difficulties because we know each other's weaknesses and we know each other's uh, trigger points. But nonetheless, we should be not only the family of Christ, but we should be, of course, keeping our family, our kids in the church. And of course, that's going to begin with strong marriages. It's going to begin with doing the things that God asks us to do in our personal life and then implementing those into our family lives. But you know, God created the family, and God, I think, wants us to have good, strong families. And not only is the family the basic building block of the church, but it's really the basic building block of culture and society as well. You know, our country is suffering today, and I'm not here to give a political commentary necessarily, but it is suffering because the family dynamic has broken down. And of course, we're seeing a lot of problems because of socially, economically, and so on and so forth. So if we have strong families, obviously it is going to produce obviously a strong society, but even more importantly, the strong church that we need. Now, I want to notice some points with you this afternoon, five points. Number one, God's definition of the family. Number two, some problem areas in marriage. Number three, the purpose of marriage. Number four, the preparation for marriage. And number five, the permanence of marriage. Now all of these things are basic and I'm sure that none of them will come as a surprise. But I want us to at least consider in a very succinct way this afternoon these concepts as we leave here then and take them into our homes, into our families. And if you're here and maybe you're a child, just a young person, you need to start hearing these things because someday even though you think boys and girls now are icky, one of these days you're going to find a little boy or a little girl, depending on your gender and how, uh, that you think is kind of cute. And of course you're going to get, want to get married. And some of you in this audience maybe are engaged or maybe some of you have just gotten married. Well, it's never too late to learn. After 38 years of marriage, I'm still learning. Mostly learning how much of a failure I have been and still am. But marriage is a lifelong project. It can be exciting, it can be wonderful, but it can be trying. It is, as they used to say about the army, uh, the hardest job you will ever love. And of course, as I was talking to Chris around, over lunch today, you know, when we keep God at the focal point of our marriages, it really doesn't matter if we are compatible. In fact, my view is that because we are two genders, we are incompatible in many ways. And so then, men and women don't see things the same, as we'll notice. But when we keep God in the picture, and we make Him our focus, then we're both focused on a single goal, and we can have very successful marriages even when we are not seeing things eye to eye, because we are seeing things in the eye of God. Well, what is God's definition 
of a family. Now today we are seeing the definition being broken down. We are seeing not only the definition of marriage being broken down, but we are seeing the very definition of gender being broken down as well. And that is probably something that we as teachers and preachers are going to have to at least address more and more as our children uh, grow up in an environment where even gender is perhaps a up for grabs proposition. Well, here are the things we want to notice. God's definition of the family. Problem areas in the marriage also, and purpose, and so on and so forth. But let's look at God's definition of family. Now really when you boil it all down, God's simple definition is one man and one woman for life, and if God so blesses, then children. Really that's the way God pointed it out in the very beginning. Now I realize that there are exceptions to this. I realize that sometimes death occurs, and I also realize that sometimes legitimate divorce occurs as well. But I want us to keep in mind the general principle, the general definition of marriage. One man, one woman for life. You know, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Here he's speaking of Adam and Eve. And of course, you remember the story. He brought Adam, of course, into this world by the dust. And then he brought Eve from the side of Adam. He, he presented them to one another. And that then was the first family unit. And then later on, they began to multiply. And of course, we are the result of that today as well. Now when we look at the basic definition of marriage, in spite of false doctrines, in spite of the philosophies around us, in spite of really just the confusion around us, marriage is a man and a woman. It's not a man and a man. It's not a woman and a woman. It's not a multiplicity of men with women. It is a man-woman lifelong proposition and hopefully it is one where God is the center point of that particular marriage. And so we need to keep the basics in our mind as far as the definition of marriage. And if we stray from that definition too far, we're going to find ourselves, I believe, in a world of hurt. As I mentioned, there are exceptions perhaps to the one man, one woman for life. There are, again, deaths and divorces that occur within a biblical context, but we need to keep this in mind. One man, and one woman for life. Now I want to spend a little bit of time on the problem areas of marriage. You know every marriage has problems. Every marriage is going to go through difficult times. You know when that young woman walks down the aisle and see her, uh, sees her knight up there in shining armor, she never realizes that armor is someday going to tarnish. And someday she's going to look up there and see that young man who's now no longer a young thin man, he's an older fat man, and his armor won't even fit for first of all, and then second of all it's going to be quite tarnished. Because there are things in his life that are going to change, problems, life just beats us up, doesn't it? And it's also of course unconscionable to that young man who sees the bride walking up the aisle that someday she might not fit in her wedding gown. And maybe at some point in time she too will have changed. And the very things that bring us together, you know, the differences 
bring us together. Maybe you're outgoing and she is not, or vice versa. Those things, after a while, if we're not careful, begin to grate on our nerves. And the very things that brought us together begin sometimes to draw us apart. Because, you know, that young man who was quiet and strong and very, uh, you know, very, very, uh, let's say, you know, intuitive about things. And he doesn't say much. He's kind of the strong, silent type. Later on, she wants him to talk to her. And he's, he's done talking. He doesn't want to really visit. He doesn't want to communicate as much as she needs. He, she needs words. And, of course, we could go on and on about that. Well, cultural problems, I think, are areas in marriage. Also, of course, divorce, homosexuality, domestic violence, and abortion. All of those could be topics in and of themselves. But we're seeing a wholesale change in our culture about the way people view divorce, about the way they view homosexuality, about the way they view uh, abortion and other social issues. Those are issues that oftentimes attack families. But even at its best, I believe that marriages face difficulties. And I have what I call the five-eyed monster. And I want to just very briefly, I can't develop these maybe very long tonight, but there is a five-eyed monster, I believe, that will plague every single marriage. And I believe that no matter how godly our marriages are, these five eyes will pop up at some point in our marriage. There is the eye of intimacy. Sex can cause problems in our marriage. There is the eye of income, money problems. The eye of in-laws, and boy, does that create a problem. The eye of infants or children, that creates difficulty. And then, of course, the old I, as in me, myself, me, my, and that creates problems as as well. You know, someone said one time that contrary to what some believe, sex is not a sin, and contrary to Hugh Hefner, it's not salvation either. And I want to begin with this idea of intimacy because while, of course, it may not be the most important eye in this five-eyed monster, it does indeed rear its head all too often. First of all, because of either sexual baggage that couples bring into their marriage. And by the way, while we don't have time to develop this either, kids stay pure before your marriage. Because if you begin to be sexual uh, before marriage, it is going to plague that marriage, I guarantee So, we need to realize that sex was a gift from God to be used in marriage as a way to bring us closer together, as a form of communication, and also as a way of procreation as well. But, sex in marriage, or sex in general, is like this writer says, nitroglycerin. It can be used to either blow up bridges or heal hearts. You know, our sexuality, our identity, which is really what sexuality is all about, is a very powerful thing. And when it is misused, it can destroy the emotions and the relationships that otherwise could be there for a lifetime. Now, when we talk about intimacy, obviously we have to be a little bit stereotypical because we all run the the gamut on where we are in our need for intimacy, whether that's physical or whether that is emotional intimacy. But nonetheless, it's been said that men are more like microwaves and women or more like crackpots, uh, crockpots. Well, anyway, I honestly did not mean to say that. I didn't. Anyway, uh, boy, that's a Freudian slip. Anyway, men are, are instant. They're, they're ready, <laughs> ready to have intimacy. And women need time to sort of warm up. 
Now, I know I'm being stereotypical, and I realize that not everything is that way. But, you know, for example, a man can get up in the morning, and he can have a fight with his wife. And that ruins her day, because they have said some things to one another that was not, you know, real kind or sweet. He goes on to work, he's, he's forgot about it. He comes home that night, and he's ready to be intimate again. He doesn't worry about what happened that morning. But you see, she has taken that. She's processed it. She's more uh, intuitive, maybe, and more deep in some of her thinking. And she's still upset about that fight that she had with him or he had with her later on that night. And so what happens? Well, the man's wanting to be intimate or he's wanting to be at least close. She wants no part of that. And you can see how if we don't understand that we're different as men and women, then it can create a great deal of difficulty. You know, really in reality, we're different for a purpose. We fill each other's needs and we help balance one another. You know, if we were just alike, if our spouse was just like us, then one of us wouldn't be needed because we'd be just the same person. But you see, usually in a marriage, a wife will have strengths that the husband doesn't have or vice versa. And of course, the intimacy factor, you know, I think helps balance the whole relationship in a marriage. The intimacy, the warmness of a woman as she uh, takes things into her breast and she thinks about them makes her the perfect mother. And of course, the more intimate, uh, instant sort of mentality of a man helps him maybe in going out and conquering the world and being a good provider. Well, number two, income. You know, most problems in young marriages that I have seen, including my own uh, 37 years ago, was either over sex or money. Because usually, you know, sex is always important to a young couple, or at least to at least one of them in that, in that marriage. But money is too. And usually when you get married, you're sort of at the low end of the monetary spectrum in many cases. Now, I think this may be changing because I see more and more young couples who are waiting until after they get out of college, maybe they've got good jobs. And so sometimes they bring two incomes that are very sufficient into a marriage. And so you don't have this initial stress of money. But now when I got married, neither one of us had decent jobs. We just got married and thought we could live on love. And we did that for about three minutes. And then we realized we got to go over to grandma's and have her feed us because we didn't have any food in the house. So you see, too little money or poorly managed money can create a lot of difficulty. I know some of you young people are taking the uh, Dave Ramsey courses now. And that's a great tool to sort of get used to living within a budget. You know, there's not unlimited money. Living within a budget and uh, beginning to use your money in a way that is not only productive for your family, but also remembering the Lord in that as well. One of the things I point out to young couples is discipline yourself, even if it's just a tiny bit to save and also to give to the Lord. Because you show me a person who can discipline their money, I'll show you a person who's probably disciplined in the other areas of their life as well. You know, sometimes too, the situation is exacerbated because a woman oftentimes will leave her father and mother at really the peak of his earning potential. And yet she goes and she joins herself to a man she loves who may be at the very beginning or the lowest point of his earning potential. And so all of a sudden, she may be, or by the way, it may be he now, coming from an environment of relative poverty and going into then, or relative wealth there, rather, and going into a, an environment of relative poverty. 
And so it can create a tremendous amount of problems. Now, another study, but the, God's Word has a tremendous amount to say about money. And of course, it has a tremendous amount to say about just using our resources as a good steward. And there are some practical things. You know, we have to, as we think about preparation for marriage, I encourage young couples to ask the question about, are they going to have a budget? Hopefully they will. And how are you going to allot money to one another as fun money maybe, and also pay the bills? Are you both going to work? Is one going to work? What are, what's the case going to be? And so there are so many questions that uh, need to be really answered. And the only thing I'll focus on on this little study, since we're kind of hurrying through, is let me just say a word, and this is very practical, about credit cards. You know, when I first got married, we couldn't even get a credit card. My wife worked for JCPenney's at the time, and we applied for a JCPenney's credit card. We thought, this is a no-brainer. She works here. They can just take her paycheck. We couldn't get one because we had no credit. And back then, you couldn't get credit at the drop of a hat. It was a little bit more difficult. Now, I get credit card offers in the mail for my dog. I don't know how that happens, but it does happen. You see, now people are willing to give you more credit than you could ever pay off in a month of lifetimes. The average credit card uh, debt for the family, now uh, they say, and I, this may have changed since I've worked this lesson up, was over $15,000. Now, that may not seem like a lot of money, but when you're having to give up other things to pay your credit card debt, and with the interest accruing back in the 70s, maybe at 21%, then that is a real, real problem. And so we have to learn to live within our means. We have to learn to be good stewards. We have to learn that sometimes, even if there's a sale down at Walmart, we can't afford to save money. Because you see, we have to be good stewards and it will create a tremendous amount of stress in our marriage if we do not use our income wisely. Well, let's talk about in-laws. You know, when you marry a woman, you really do, or a man for that matter, marry their family. Now, you know, that comes to play more and more, of course, as you live with that woman or that man and you have to decide, well, where are we gonna spend the holidays? Where are we gonna spend the birthdays? Who's going to get the money to buy the gift for the mother-in-law? Maybe the son-in-law doesn't really want to do that. Maybe the wife does. There are going to always be questions and difficulties in, when it comes to in-laws. And so before you marry that individual that you think is just perfect, guys, look at her mother. Girls, look at her father. Now, they're not going to be perfect. In fact, they may be quite far from perfect, but notice the dynamics of the family. Now, I'm not saying that if the dynamics of a family are broken, because you're going to find more and more broken families today. I'm not saying that you shouldn't marry that person, but I'm saying be wise going in to that relationship and realize that if a woman or a man is from a broken family, a divorce or a death, there are going to be certain baggages that they bring. It's just the way it's going to be. And so you as, for example, a man, have to be willing to be the proper leader in that particular situation. In other words, grow up before you marry. I think the problem, of course, in my generation was some of us got married extremely young, age 19, which then it didn't seem so young, now it seems like maybe a baby, but we weren't necessarily uh, prepared mentally and emotionally for the great responsibility. And you know, marriage is again a job, it's a wonderful job but it's a difficult task. And so just because you have uh, an infatuation, even what you believe is love for a particular individual, 
That doesn't mean that that individual is necessarily a good candidate for a spouse. Because you see, what we've got to do is filter this through what God wants. And it may very well be that we meet a lot of people in our lives that look like good candidates for marriage, but we get to know them and we realize they're good people. But it's probably not the wisest person for me to marry considering who I am. Know yourself before you have to learn to get to know, for example, the in-laws. And of course, the practical consideration. How did your family resolve conflict? How did her family resolve conflict? You know, maybe you came from a background where uh, a little bit more of a uh, hard hand was used in discipline. Maybe she came from a background where you never raised your voice and you never touched the child. You know, those are things that can create a tremendous amount of stress. And I'm not talking about physical abuse. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm just talking about maybe even, uh, you know, spanking a child uh, even uh, with your hand or whatever. Sometimes the one spouse can see what another spouse is doing and they can say, wait a minute, I wasn't raised that way. And they become upset because of that. Another thing is how close do you want to live to your families? Sometimes families love to live almost right on top of each other and it works great. Other people need a little bit of buffer. And so you need to know yourself. You need to know your spouse or your potential spouse and understand the baggage that we will bring in to our marriages. Well, what about infants? Well, infants can create problems. Because let's say you've been married for three or four or five years. A lot of times kids will get married and they'll wait, you know, a long time to have children, finish their school, get a good job, and you're just each other's babies. And whatever each other want, you just give it, and then all of a sudden a real baby comes along. A baby that really does have needs, and all of a sudden one or both of the parents has to grow up. That can create a tremendous amount of stress. That can create jealousy in one or the other of the partners. And so then there are all kinds of considerations before marriage, I think that should be talked about, about children. What's your view on discipline? Uh, what kind of parenting style do you think that you should have or he should have? Uh, what about adoption? You know, sometimes couples can't conceive. And so they then decide we want to adopt or we don't want to adopt. And then also, example, in the income, what if, you know, you've been used to two incomes and all of a sudden there's a child and one of you has to quit work? Who is for time and, and raise the child? Who is going to do that? Are you going to have daycare? Are you going to have mom or dad or grandma? Who, again is going to answer those uh, issues. Difficult, yes, but things that we need to start thinking about. And really my point is this, not that you have all the answers, because I don't know that there is a single set of answers, but the issue is begin to think maturely before you marry. Well, the last eye is the eye of just ego. It's all about me. And you know, I am reminded many times by my wife that it's not all about me. And I say, well, then what does that mean? It's all about you? Well, you see, it really shouldn't be either one. It should be all about God. Now, you know, sometimes we say marriage is compromise. You give a little, I give a little. But, you know, compromise, I guess that's a good definition, but really what that means is neither one of you are happy. You know, when you compromise, that means you're giving up something and she is too. Marriage is that way sometimes. But in reality, if we both put, you know, our focus on God and give up what he doesn't want and take into our marriage is what he does want. It's not about either of us, it's about him. And I guarantee you that even when we think we're incompatible, which at times we will think that, if we put God first, 
there indeed will be a great marriage and a great relationship that comes from that. You know, the Apostle Paul spoke in Philippians about not looking to our own interests and looking to the interests of others. Paul in Corinthians 13 says about love that it suffers long and it's kind, it's patient. And it, of course, is a love that we need to have in our families. Well, we need, as we think about ourselves and our own needs, and we all have needs. We all have physical needs. We all have wants. We all have wants as well. You know, men, I think, are probably worse at this than women. I think men maybe are a little bit more uh, self-centered than than maybe women. I don't know. It seems like maybe I am. And I think about buying books all the time. And then I think, well, you know, wait a minute. I just spent this amount of money on these books. Am I giving that same amount of money or same amount of leeway to my wife to buy whatever she wants? You know, again, we need to be fair and not just make it one-sided in the marriage, not just about me or her, not just about her. But again, we need to think about how to please and work together and serve one another. Back to the money issue, I think one of the things that's helped my wife and I is we've decided that, and this may sound like a lot of money when you're first married, but we won't spend more than $100 without conferring with the other. Sometimes things come up and you just have to buy it. But you know, on a big purchase, whether that's a a huge book or maybe, uh, you know, something, we won't won't, uh, spend until we talk to one another about that. And that will help not only with the ego part, uh, ego part, but also the money as well. Well, let's move right along. The purpose of marriage, I don't want to take too long. What is the purpose of marriage? Well, the purpose of marriage is really uh, basically for a variety of reasons. Number one, it's for partnership. You know, we are people who need one another. We are gregarious creatures. When Adam was created, he said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'm going to make him a helper. And so we have relations, we have, uh, we have partnerships, but we're dissimilar partners. And I think when you look again at men and women, you can see that. Now, there's all kinds of combinations and blending of these, but typically a woman is more relational. She's more intuitive, maybe more process-oriented, uh, maybe more intricate in the looking to details. Uh, men are kind of like the big brute sometimes. We're loners, we're less social, Uh, We're task-oriented. We just want the facts. Sometimes even men can be a little coarse. You see, we're different. And so, you know, we need one another to help balance the weaknesses and the, uh, the insecurities we have for one another. Number two, marriage is not only for, uh, you know, the partnership, but it's for procreation. God blessed Adam and Eve and said, multiply, be fruitful and multiply. And of course, that's the idea of having children. You see, God still wants His people to have children. And there's so much more we could say about that. But sex in marriage is to be for children. But then that brings us to the next point, and that is, it's for pleasure. Marriage is for pleasure. And you know, that initial infatuation and sexual attraction that we have sometimes toward the opposite gender when we first marry, it's okay to keep that right on through. And it's okay to develop that to a deeper level where we no longer look at our spouse because they may be gotten a little heavy or a little too thin or whatever the case might be, but to realize that the sexuality that we enjoy is a gift from God. And Proverbs speaks of that and other places in the Old Testament speak of how we are blessed by the individual's bodies and sexuality that God gives us. Even in 1 Corinthians 7, 
Paul says that the woman's body is not her own, it's her husband's, and the man's body is not his, it's his wife's. And so, again, we meet one another's needs. We try to help each other in purity and, of course, uh, with that pleasure. Well, let's go right along. Preparation of marriage, and then we'll uh, begin to draw our thoughts to a close. But preparation of marriage, I think, you know, we need to understand that marriage is from God. And uh, marriage is something that we really should start training our children in from a very, very young age. You know, marriage is something that many times brings forth children. In fact, the psalmist says that the man who has children, he's a happy man. It's like having a quiver full of arrows. And, you know, that's really true because, you know, in marriage what we do is we have children and we send our children like arrows into the future where we cannot go. You know, our lifetimes are, uh, there's a limit to what our lifetimes will, will be. We're only going to live so long. But if we can put those values, Christian values, in our children and then like arrows in a warrior's hand, send them into the future, then really what we're doing is we're training our children to take our values and God's values, more importantly, into the future and continue to help society and, of course, the church. Well, there's a lot of things we could do. I'm going to skip this part this evening, but, you know, marrying in the Lord is so important. When you look, for example, at Deuteronomy 7, God told His people, don't marry the pagans who worship other gods. Uh, Solomon in 1 Kings married pagan wives, and they literally drew his heart away from God. In fact, I think it's an interesting story because, you know, it was Solomon who built the temple. David wanted to build the temple for God in Jerusalem, but God said, no, you're a man of war, so I don't want you to do that. You've got blood on your hands, but Solomon can build it. Did you know that Solomon built probably the greatest structure ever of the ancient world? And yet, during his own lifetime, in the very shadow, literally, of that temple, he went out and built measly structures to the gods and goddesses of his wives. You see, when you marry the wrong person, it can and oftentimes will lead us astray. Well, finally, the permanence of marriage. You know, God designed marriage to be for life. Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The idea there in the Hebrew is literally the idea of bonding with glue. You know, you take uh, two things and you glue them together inseparably. You know, it's kind of like the commercials that you see if you're a woodworker, you'll see commercials for maybe uh, Gorilla Glue or whatever, where you take wood and you bond it together, and that bond is actually stronger then than the wood because that, uh, the components have glued those pieces together inseparably. Well, that's really what marriage is. It is the joining, the gluing together of two persons, husband and wife, into a relationship that is not designed to even primarily meet one's own physical wants, but to meet one's spiritual needs. Your biggest job in a marriage is to help your spouse go to heaven. The biggest job you have is to help your spouse go to heaven. And God does not want that to be dissolved. Now I realize there are times when sin enters, there are divorces, there are deaths and other things, but the rule again that we started out with applies, and that is that God wants one man, one woman for life. You know, really marriage, and I realize I'm splitting definitions here, but a marriage is really more than a contract. It's a covenant. It is a covenant with God, a man, and a woman. 
There used to be this song we used to sing at a lot of weddings back in the 70s, uh, you know, uh, something about God, a woman, and a man. Well, that's right. God witnesses our marriages. And God wants to be a part of your marriage. And the irony is, is, you know, when a man and a woman marry, if they bring somebody else into that marriage, it's obviously going to destroy that marriage. But when they bring God into that marriage, it's going to cement them together into the most beautiful relationship that you could ever imagine. You know, Malachi, the Old Testament, they were divorcing. In fact, they had to be regulated in that. But Malachi said God hates it. God does not want divorce. God wants one man, one woman for life. Well, in conclusion, when we think of marriage and the permanence of marriage, you know, God said that men are to be and women are to be fruitful and multiply. They are to leave their home and cleave to their spouse. You know, that's a very interesting phrase because there are two things that humans need to be self-actualized, to be uh, happy, to be prosperous and uh, really perfected in their own lives. That is, first of all, they need freedom and they need stability. In other words, they need wings and they need roots. We all need that. We all need some freedom, but we all need some stability as well. Marriage provides that. In a marriage that is in God's will, we come together, we leave our father and mother, there's the wings, we fly the nest, we experience our own ability to make our own decisions, having been hopefully trained by good godly parents, and then eventually we come together and we cleave to our wife or our spouse and we set up a new family unit. We develop roots. And you know, both of those things are wonderful because we have our own freedom. We can be our own self. We're not under the leadership of our father or mother anymore directly. And yet we have a stability. We can come home at night to that person that we know so well and that knows us better than anyone else. Wings and roots. And a good marriage provides that when it is a marriage in the Lord. Well, Marriage is ordained by God, it's God sanctified it, God blessed it, and we need to learn to preserve and enjoy it as well. Those are the thoughts this evening, again, a very truncated version, but um, we need strong families. We used to sing a song called, God Give Us Christian Homes, and it went through every role, father, mother, children, and that's true. We need good, solid marriages. And yes, there's going to be problems, there is no such thing as a perfect marriage, Although, any marriage in the Lord, I suppose, is really the marriage God wants us to have. We're humans. We're going to have problems. Your spouse is not going to fulfill your needs all the time, and you won't fulfill theirs. But if we can keep some of these trigger points in mind and put God first in our relationships, whether it's marriage or otherwise, we're going to find those relationships much more productive and, of course, in pleasing with God's will. Those are the thoughts. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, would you be willing to take the steps that we've outlined every night of this meeting to hear the Word, believe it, repent of your sins, confess Jesus as the Son of God, and then have those sins washed away in baptism. If you're here this evening, though, and you've taken those steps, we can assist you in some way. We'd be happy to do that tonight while we stand and while we sing.